So I'm going to read the passage. We are in Luke chapter 16 this morning. Um, amazing parable of Jesus. As part of our series, Desire Wisdom, we've been looking at uh, the, the works of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament and Proverbs. And then a few weeks ago, we decided to start looking at the parables of Jesus because it's remarkable, actually, if you study them. And we've been doing this in our missional community groups during the week where we look at the parable that we're looking at today, and then we look at some Proverbs in our Bible studies throughout the week that relate directly to the parable. It's remarkable. Well, not really. (laughs) It's the Holy Spirit of God that inspired Solomon to write the Proverbs. It's the Spirit of Christ working in him, and these parables that Jesus preached, that he gave to men and women in the days when he walked this earth, were just full of wisdom. His whole hope was when you would hear these parables, those who were following would hear these parables, they would be struck that He is the wisdom of God, incarnate in the flesh, and they would grow wise, and especially in a few areas, and one in particular that we'll see today. So, read with me. We're going to begin in verse 19, very famous parable of Jesus. Dr. Luke wrote, "'There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day.' And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side." And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, well, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abram said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear from them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Speaking and preaching to these people who are following in the day. Well, without doubt, uh, this has to be one of the most challenging parables of Jesus. And some of you here this morning might might be saying, well, well, then why, Pastor? (laughs) Like, why? Well, because every man and woman, Jesus determined, needed to hear this parable. And this was really central in in the time of his ministry, in his three and a half years of ministry on this earth. This is the central message. This is what he came to proclaim. It was his purpose to come and let us know about the future, about his kingdom, 
how to get in and how to avoid the other places that exist. And so it's the subject of every one of His teachings. From the Sermon on the Mount to every parable, it's Jesus taught more about, if you look at it actually in, in, in totality, He taught more about the Father, about hell, and about money than everything else combined. Those, and in today's message, in today's parable, we, we've got all three, basically, but mainly we've got hell and money or wealth is what He's speaking about. I mean, throughout all of his messages, and we've seen this in the last two to three weeks, he's basically saying two things very clearly all the time. Enter in. Enter in through the narrow gate into heaven, into my kingdom. And then the second thing that he's saying throughout all of his teachings is beware. Beware. And so, listen, I, I know this is true, and you guys all know this. There are many objections to Christianity in our world today, right? And if you've been around the Rock Church at all for very long, you know that we've been discussing them. We bring them out. We talk about them all the time, right? And, of course, there's always the, the, the objection of, well, what you guys believe about creation and evolution, and that one, you know, we, we've talked about that one quite a bit, and we get around to that kind of thing. But there's that objection, but there's also, you know, the exclusivity of Jesus. You know, Jesus is the only way, like no other religion. I mean, really? There's objections to these things. Miracles. You guys actually believe in a virgin birth and, you know, man rising from the dead? Uh-huh, we do. There's objections to that. But then there's also objections to disease and sickness and evil in the world. Why would a good God allow those things to happen? None really comes close, I don't think, to the idea of heaven and hell. No objection comes close to that one in most people's minds. The idea that a good and loving God, as most people like to portray Him, and He is, would allow or literally send someone to a place of torment for eternity, it's like people go, look, I can believe in a God, but not that God. That's a huge objection. Understood. I think Jesus understood that when He preached this parable. Most of you know a famous man who great mind, great thinker, uh, prominent atheist, passed away a few years ago. His name is Christ Christopher Hitchens. Um, he passed away from cancer. Um, he referred to himself in his later years as he was debating Christians constantly, uh, and just after he wrote his famous or infamous book. But he described himself, referred to himself as a Protestant atheist, right? And people are like, well, what do you mean by that? Right? And what he meant is, is that his meaning is it's the God of the Christian of the Protestant Bible that he was referring to in his book, God is not great. He's saying that God is not great. Well, well, why? Well, for all the typical reasons, but most notably because of the idea of two things, eternal heaven which he referred to as the eternal bliss, kind of sarcastically, pardon me. And secondly, of course, a God that would sentence anyone to eternal damnation. Those are his words, as he liked to put it. So it's important to note that this was the basis of his revulsion. He considered himself a rather moral and ethical guy, and that's why I think a lot of skeptics and unbelievers and people who would classify themselves as atheists like him, because he, he had his own form of morality, but his attitude was this, I, I don't want to live in eternity in a, in a place of eternal bliss with a God that would actually send people that I know, that I love, that I cherished 
on this planet while I lived here to that other place. I just, I, I wouldn't choose to be, want to be forever with that kind of God. That was his primary objection. But it, it betrays, really, despite his true brilliance as a mind, and he was a bright guy. I, I, some people say, well, why did you read that guy? I guess he was a smart man. He debated some of the greatest Christian apolog- apologists around, and, and, and he stood his own. But sadly, he did not really have a deep understanding of who God is and what God has done. But more importantly, he didn't really understand us, himself, the human heart, the human heart, who we are as humans and how then we should live knowing who God truly, really is, especially with the next life in the balance. If there is any issue in this life that we need more wisdom about, I need, you need, we all need, this whole world needs more wisdom about, come on. It's about what happens when we die. Is this it? Is this it? Do we just become worm food? Is that it? No. There is obviously more going on here. I want to I give you, I, I meant to do this the last couple of weeks and really because of time didn't get around to it, but I want to give you three responses to wisdom when we hear it. And, I, and we're going to apply it to today's message, but you can apply it to any of the wisdom passages that we've, we've been going through so far. There are three responses, typical responses, that we as humans have when we hear wisdom from above. I'm not talking earthly wisdom, you know, follow your heart, you know, human wisdom. I'm talking about wisdom that comes from God. The first response that most people do or get when they hear something really wise is go, uh-huh, yeah, oh, yeah, that's wise. That's, yeah, absolutely. When I need that, I'll apply it to my life, right? So we hear something that's really wise, like, for example, uh, you know, save yourself until you get married, and, 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 you know, like marriage is between a man and a woman, so wait for that, and it's like, yeah, no, that's, that's truly good wisdom. Um, but, and so the first step is neglect, you hear wisdom, you set it aside, because it doesn't really apply to you today. But then secondly, now it applies. <laughs> now you're in a situation where that wisdom that you heard applies to the situation you're in, but here's what we do. We all do this. Deny it. You know, I, I did think that was the right thing to do. Um, I, that was true wisdom. But now that I'm in the situation, my circumstances are a little bit different than anybody else's. And, you know, I'm special and so forth. So, you know, I, yeah, I, we deny it. And, and then we follow our heart, right? And, and we, we go down that road. And typically what happens to most, most of us is we arrive at a situation where um, it's a dead end. Or it becomes a train wreck. And that's the point at which we regret it. We regret it. Good news about most mistakes that we make, bad decisions we make in our lives today is we get a do-over. We can neglect, we can deny, and end up regretting. We can go, whoa, start over. God's wisdom. Let's go. This story is about a situation where there's no do-over. There's no do-over. So let's look at today's parable, which is really a great example of this process with wisdom, which highlights the point of when regret is too late. It's the point at which it's too late. So we've seen repeatedly in the past three weeks about context, uh, really any time we read the Gospels, that Jesus has been followed by two groups of people. 
We saw this in chapter 15 of Luke in the first couple of verses uh, where he's being followed by tax collectors and sinners, you know, all the outcasts and all the bad people in the world according to the Jewish religious Pharisees, which is you and me and everybody, right? And then those guys, the religious Pharisees, self-righteous, perfect in their own minds anyway. He's being followed by these two groups consistently. And so Jesus spends most of his time trying to actually reach both groups. Some people think he's kind of hard on the Pharisees, like he's preaching at them. And it's like, yeah, he is, but that's because they are a Pharisee, and it's because all of us could become one, right? And so he's trying to win both. And so sadly what happens is, is that what we see between these two groups is sadly it's the tax collectors and the sinners that want to come close to Jesus. And when, when he talks about what's really going on in their hearts, they're like, yeah, you know what? Honestly, the majority of them are like, yeah, he's got our hearts pegged pretty good. And they repent and they place their faith in him and they come to love him and to serve him. But then there are the others who are like, no, 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 no. This is the denial stage. <laughs> no, no, he's not talking about us. He's obviously talking about those people. It's denial. So it's the same today, and this parable highlights the same two groups. There's great contrasts going on here. Two men, two identities, two paths, and two destinations. From last week's text in Luke 15, where Jesus preaches three parables in a row directed at or to the Pharisees, it's interesting that at the beginning of chapter 16, he actually begins a parable about the dishonest manager, right? The parable of the dishonest manager, which we might look at next week or the week after, which is preached directly to his disciples. And it's about Christians or disciples who are dishonest with their money and their goods. In other words, they're keeping it for themselves and they're not sharing. And then we see that, and I just want to show you this as part of the context today as we jump into the the parable, just before the parable, we see these words in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, where it says, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things. So he, they heard what Jesus was preaching to his disciples, those who were following him, that had placed their faith in, faith in him. And they, they, Jesus <laughs> declares, who were lovers of money, right, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Right? This is the neglect to denial. Yeah, this is not for us. This is for somebody else. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves. See, that's what we do. We hear wisdom. We neglect it. And in the denial stage, we justify our actions, what we're going to do. And he then says, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So now we arrive at today's parable. And let me put up the first couple of verses for you so that we can see where we're at. Verses 19 to 21 say this. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So right off the bat typical of Jesus' parables, most of his teachings, contrast. Simple. It's very simple contrast. We've got a rich man and we've got a poor man. And one man's riches are on display in amazing ways, right? Uh, In his fine and expensive clothing, uh, in, in his abundance of foodie foods, his beautiful castle and house that he lives in, which is gated, right? And that's an important point. 
You know, there's a gate. We're going we're gonna to see that come up a little later in the form of a chasm. The other man with little or no clothes. How do we know he has little or no clothes on? Because we can see the sores on his body. Great contrast here. And again, it's, it's, it's Jesus going to the nth degree, exaggeration per se, to make his point to them who are listening to this. So one, man, one's man world, one man's world and his worldly goods are not only separated, but look at this, protected from the other man. There's also a hint at something deeper. The rich man is obviously rich and in the position he's in because he's a good man. He's a spiritual man, a superior man. I don't know if you see it, but Jesus, all, again, the tax collectors, the sinners are over here, and, and, and the Pharisee guys are over here, and they're listening to this parable. And Jesus throws in that line there where he says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Okay, Pharisees called Gentile, unclean people dogs. And so Jesus is making it pretty clear to the Pharisees, to the, to the rich, that this rich man is you. Is you. And this is your attitude towards these people. It's not mine, but it's your attitude towards these people. Well, then it goes on. Verses 22 and 23, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The one thing I note, I don't know if you see it, but note, I mean, three verses about their earthly life, right? And then there's an abrupt transition. And the rest of the parable is all about after their death. So it's a huge transition. Three verses describe that. So first thing, listen, death, obviously, many commentators say this, it's the great equalizer, right? I like to say that at the cross, there's level ground, right? As my favorite motivational speaker once said about those who die who were very rich, about how much they leave behind, he said with his Texas drawl, they left it all behind. We leave it all behind, right? We don't take anything with us. This is what happens here. It's a great equalizer. So first notice that the order has changed. Order has changed. That's important to notice. We read about the, the fate of the poor man first, followed by the fate of the rich man. I got I to point this out right here because this is important. Uh, we don't have time to go into more deeply, but this parable is not saying that it's bad to be rich. Okay? It, it's not saying that it's holy to be poor. It's a parable. It's making a point. There are many godly, godly people who are in earthly terms wealthy and give and give and give. Another key in this parable we discover here Unlike most of Jesus' parables, some of the characters in this parable have names. That's remarkable when you think about it. And, and some commentators over the last two, three hundred years have actually kind of got their knickers in a knot over this, like kind of going, well, wait a second. Maybe that means uh, it's not really a parable. Maybe it's a, it's a true story. Well, that's possible, I guess. But I, I'm going to agree with the majority of commentators and theologians who say that it is indeed a parable and that names are used by Jesus so that the Pharisees listening would be certain to understand his point. And I think we're going to see it as we go forward. The rich man, I'll, I'll say right up front, is not named because it's not necessary to name him. First of all, it's just not necessary. He, he's representative of anyone in this world today 
who's not rich towards God, but is selfish, not generous. That can be anyone, no matter how much is actually in your bank account. So he's every man to a certain extent, especially compared to others who sees the need right in front of him, even knows the names of the poor outside his or her gates, and still doesn't help them. So we learn this from the names that are used. I mean, first of all, uh, Father Abraham. This confirms that the rich man was a religious Jew. I mean, he's, he, he's in this place, he's in Hades, and he's looking up, and he can actually see a man who he knows. Well, how would he know Father Abraham if he didn't know Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, and the Torah? He was a religious man. This, is, this confirms that point. He saw Abraham as a spiritual father. He knew his Bible, the Old Testament. However, we also see what is ultimately damning evidence. He knew the poor man's name too. He knew Lazarus's name. I mean, how would you not? He's outside your front gate every day. People carry him there and put him there, hoping that one day as you come out, you'll just give him something to eat. Finally, in the great reversal, we learn that the poor man is immediately taken up into the presence of Father Abraham, to his side, to his bosom, literally is the words being used there, which is a picture all Jewish believers would have understood about the afterlife of a faithful Jew. Not a beggar. Not an unclean man. This is remarkable. The rich man who thought he knew Father Abraham and that his fate was certain was buried. Two words in the Scripture to describe what, in earthly terms, all of the Pharisees, all of those hearing this parable would have known would have been a very, very, very big funeral, right? Lots would be spent. Great speeches would be made about this man. Two words are his obit in the Scripture. This tells us something about God's attitude towards this man and also our wealth. Another question that verse 23 raises for many theologians is whether or not those who are in hell can actually see those who are in heaven and vice versa. So again, there's a lot of debate about that, but then again, if you go to the rest of the Scripture and you, you read what it has to say, and again, Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Scripture. When you read about it, the reality is it's probably like, no, no, that's probably figurative or metaphorical in this parable, but it's trying to convey a point, which again speaks to other religions and faiths in this world, especially those who don't believe there's any life after death whatsoever. Jesus, the Son of God who came from heaven, is eternal, is saying, no, no, just a second. This is a place of where everyone will be, whether in heaven or in hell, where there is full consciousness where there is full awareness of where you are and where you are not. The poor man is lifted up. The rich man goes down. It's everything about Jesus is that way, right? Everything's turned upside down. It's totally countercultural. We think that the way to be up and to the right is to achieve wealth and to protect our wealth. With Jesus, it's like, no, no, no. The poor in spirit, remember that? the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, will inherit the kingdom of God. So again, it's not about poverty in financial terms. It's about poverty spiritually, people who recognize they are spiritually bankrupt 
before God who are welcomed in. So here's what some people, even well-meaning Christians, do with the subject of hell, right? I mean, at first, the non-believing person denies the existence of life after death, and well, there you go, that settles my problem. Don't have to worry about it, made the decision, there's no evidence, it's done, you know, we're, we're just, it's end, annihilation, nothing. When you die, nothing. Some people think that solves the problem. Second, others will say, well, if there is life after death, and there is a God, Surely he's going to look at all of the good that I've done in my life, you know, the scales and the balances, and he's going to determine that, you know, I got over the bar. <laughs> That's the hope of even, I think, some Christians that, or people who might think they are. And finally, as we've seen in another parable, there are those who absolutely believe they're in, they deserve to be in, because they've been clearly religious leaders. They've been preaching, performing miracles, casting out demons, right? And we read Jesus' words to them at the end were, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I don't even know you. Now, that verse might be the reason why this man is not named. Of course, Jesus knows who he is, but he no longer has a name. So let's just look at the obvious here about heaven and hell. Jesus, the Son of God who came from heaven, is the one speaking these words, as I've said. He states that there are two realities. There is life before death and there is life after death. We will all live eternally, Jesus says. And you'll remember the words of Solomon that we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where he said this, God has put eternity into our hearts right? He's put eternity into all of our hearts. In other words, it's inescapable in every human being, and yet we deny it. Some of us deny it. Many hope by, by putting faith in their unbelief in God that there is nothing after the grave. When Jesus says there most certainly is, there's a second reality, and, and that Jesus makes very clear here and to the end of this parable. There are two, only two possible outcomes. Heaven with our God and Creator in a place of comfort and beauty for eternity, and hell, a place we will now learn more about. In verse 24, the man who was rich and is now rather poor calls out to Father Abraham and says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue so I am I'm in anguish in this flame. Now, I know that the normal tendency is, and I've done this before, is to look at this man's desperation and to feel sorry for him. Human compassion is a good thing, but it might be to miss his character here if you were to do that. Nothing has changed with this man except his change of address. Nothing has changed. He is no longer inside his gated property and inside his great and beautiful home, and yet he still seems to think he is by his behavior, right? You can see what he's doing here. He addresses Father Abraham, and it looks respectful at first, but really it, it isn't. If you look at the whole statement that he makes, he, he's showing respect to him. Why? To get him to do something for him. He, he's treating Father Abraham as if he's a servant and then he knows Lazarus' name, and he says, oh, and by the way, send my servant to me to comfort me and care for me. This man needs a reality check. He needs a reality check. That's, that's just 
not get. He, he, he asks for the mercy that he never showed to this man outside his gate all of his life. He wants mercy that he didn't give. He wants it materially, not spiritually. And he wants it from the very man he refused to give mercy to during his earthly life. Listen, there, there's, a, there's a great story here. I don't have time to go into it too much. But listen, this is how a lot of religious people, and I'm, when I say religious people, I'm talking people who are not Christian, but I, I think they have very strong morals, act towards God. And Christians can do this. We, we think God's like a pinata, like He's here to serve us. <laughs> you know, like if, if I do good things, God should do good things for me. God should never allow pain and suffering and things like that to come into my life. This is evident in this man even now. And now he wants it from God through Father Abraham. So he asks, look at this, to have his tongue cooled, the same tongue that he enjoyed his great sumptuous banquets with and now, ex- now experiences the pain that is caused, is caused by, look at this, flame, by flame and torment. Now, most scholars would agree, and I would agree with them, that the idea of fire or flames is most likely metaphorical, and to some that might be like, whew, that's good news. Actually, it's much worse than that. It's much worse than that is what is going on here. So let me try to explain how how the bulk of Scripture, very quickly before we move on, describes the reality of hell. Just give you a little bit of a picture of it. Um, My favorite question that you guys know this, to ask a skeptic or an unbeliever or an atheist, is to ask them this question. Are things the way in this world, in your life, they should be? It doesn't matter who I've asked that question to, almost 100% of the time, most people honest people who live in this world would go, no, not at all. They're not. We instinctively, look, we instinctively as human beings, we know that things are far from the way that they should be. But here's the second question. How do we know that? How do we we know that, right? If, if, If naturalistic, random, Darwinian evolution is true, how would we know that? How do we come to that point where we know that? When have we ever seen things that way so that we'd be able to look back and say, well, yeah, obviously things were perfect then, and so we know the way that things should be and the way that they are today, not it. Well, the truth is, we've never seen that. But how, how is it possible that is in us, that this, this eternity is in us? It's called the Imago Dei. It's the image of God that's resident in every human being. It's the garden experience. There was perfection on earth at one point in time. It was called the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were without sin. They hadn't rebelled against God. Things were perfect the way they should be. So now look at this. Imagine a place where everything that makes the world not the way that it should be today, where everything is totally wrong, Imagine a place where it's like that day in, day day out, forever, for eternity. Come on. Are are there not times in your life where as much as you love your life and you love your wife and you love your kids and you love your whatever, and you're just like, Lord Jesus, come. It's, It's just horrible what's going on in our world. Imagine a time where for eternity, these things just get worse and worse. And here's the point. Here's the point. 
when the salt and light, which is God living, the Holy Spirit living in the lives and the bodies of His church, which is you and me if we're Christian, are completely removed from that place, when God removes His Spirit from that place, can you imagine the anxiety for eternity, knowing that it's not going to get any better? It's just going to get worse and worse. That's hell. That's hell. We go on in verse 25 to our conclusion. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. So a- Abraham is quite kind to him. He, he, it's, it's like he's saying, son, uh, child. He's being very benevolent and loving to him. But his answer to this man's request is the first reason why he cannot and will not send Lazarus Notice through all of this, Lazarus is completely silent. It's the great reversal again. You had all your good things in that life. Lazarus didn't. You had your chance to love God over yourself and your stuff, to love God and to love others. You had that chance. It's the great reversal all over again. On the other hand, Lazarus was a nobody. You see, in God's economy, in God's economy, you and your riches actually mean nothing, which is why this man has no name as well. But Lazarus, on the other hand, now has a name. He is known by God, and now he is the one who is truly, truly rich. He's living in greater comfort, and you are now living in worse conditions than he you ever did, he's saying to this man. But there's another reason. In verse 26, it says, and besides this, besides this, the other reason why I can't do this is between us and you, a great chasm gate has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from us to you. So besides all this is to say that before was a lot, isn't it? But there is also this. Essentially, Jesus, Abraham, is saying to this man, it's too late. It's too late. Regret is not going to help. It's too late at this point. Death is the great equalizer as well as the point of no return. There is no do-over. There's no court of appeals. The decision is out of our hands and in the hands of the one who knows all of our hearts, and his decision is both final and eternal. Friends, these are sobering words. Come on. I'm preaching this, but these are sobering words. I understand. And so, friend, I have to ask you here today, don't hear this. Don't look at neglect this, because there's a point in time coming for all of us where it will one day be too late. It will one day be too late. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Well, at least we can say this about this man at this time. At this point, now he's accepted his fate. He's accepted reality. But the truth is, he he actually chose his identity, this identity, for himself all along. Not that he chose to be where he is, but he chose this identity for himself. He wanted to be this person. And really, this is about Jesus' big idea for this parable. He asks Abraham to send again his servant Lazarus to his 
brothers and, and, and his father to what? To warn them, which is exactly what Jesus is doing to the Pharisees and his disciples at that time and for us this morning. To warn them. And our passage concludes, but Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the man said to him, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, No, they won't. (laughs) If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Who's saying these words? Jesus Christ is saying these words right in front of these guys. It's remarkable. So this is the key to the whole story here. The Pharisees and all those listening to Jesus, for that matter, had the Word of God. They had the Old Testaments and had the prophets. And Jesus is essentially saying to them and to you and I today, read your Bibles. (laughs) That's where you'll find eternal life. Read your Bibles. Jesus is saying this to them. Then, then once the rich man gets this idea, he's all of a sudden, yeah, yeah, but wait, wait a second. I got this one really good idea. You know, like, boom. You know, like, like a major miracle. Like a, a dead person rises from the dead, like Lazarus. Here's the crazy thing about this point. He's basically saying, hey, you know what? Even my brothers and my father knew who Lazarus was. The whole family neglected this man. That's really sad when you think about it. So you and I have an advantage over the Pharisees hearing this parable preached by Jesus today, don't we? We have this advantage. We're on this side of the cross. We know who it was, who it is that rose from the dead. Amen? We know that the Bible is true and that Jesus' parable here is actually a prophecy about what's going to happen. We know these things to be true. We know that a man did rise from the dead. We also know that Abraham's words are true. Even today, oh, this is so sad. People hear this, hear about Jesus and what he's done, but most deny it. Why? Because they don't want this kind of God. They don't want Jesus. They don't want him. They want to be their own God. They want to be rich unto themselves and not to God. You know, it's, it's kind of sad when you think about it, obviously. We, we being on this side of the cross, you know, we think, well, you know, why would, why would anyone now knowing these things deny Jesus, right? Well, here's the crazy thing, right? Jesus rises from the dead, right? And, he, and he's speaking to his disciples. You all know this passage. And, he, and he's, he's, he's standing there right in front of them. It's 30 days after he's risen from the dead. Well, first of all, been crucified, buried, risen from the dead. He's standing from his disciples, and he's just about to ascend, and he's sending them into the world to preach the gospel so that you and I here today would hear the gospel, hear the word of God, and come to faith in them. And we read these words in Matthew 28, 16, and 17. Let me make sure we're at Yes, we are. Now, the 11 disciples, the 11, because Judas is out of the picture, right? went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But look at this. Some doubted. Are you kidding me? Just 30 days after the physical, literal Jesus? It happens today. We neglect. We deny. We regret. Let me give us some applications to take away today. Some things that I think we, we need to do here. What you can do, what I can do, what we can do with what we've just heard. Let me show it to you this way. Before death, we actually saw 
in this story, we actually saw a poor rich man. He, he was poor in spirit. He, he, he was poor towards God. He was a poor rich man. And we also saw a rich poor man. After death, the poor rich man became poorer, bankrupt really. While the rich poor man became richer and richer and richer to this day in eternity, he's becoming richer and richer. That's the great hope that everyone in this room that we all have in Christ Jesus is that one day we will become rich in the things that God wants us to be rich in. And I think that's why Jesus, when He was speaking specifically to His disciples in Luke chapter 12, He said these words, very challenging words, but good words coming from Jesus. He said, guys, sell your possessions. Unload the stuff that's holding you back. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With a treasure in the heavens, make a deposit in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's my favorite verse, quite frankly, uh, from the Gospel of Luke is right there. So five things we can do. Five things. Number one, obviously, believe. Number one is believe. (laughs) Friend, if you're here today and you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ, like really given your life to Him, and, and this eternal equation is resting on your heart today, don't neglect, don't deny this. Place your faith in Christ today. Christian, if you're here today and you're, you're like, I, I, you know what? I haven't been thinking about this in a long time. I've not been living like I actually believe this. Believe. Be baptized. And become one of the richest poor people in life today, which is awesome rich in Christ. Secondly, obviously, we've just seen it in this passage. Read your Bibles. Let me just simply ask this. You're not not hearing from God, not aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, in your struggles, in your marriage, in, in your need for wisdom. Jesus says, read your Bibles, and you will find me, and I am the fount of wisdom. Read your Bibles. Thirdly, again, it's obvious. Pray. I mean, it seems obvious, But here's the point. After death, we saw this in this passage as well, it's too late. That's exactly what this man is trying to do. He's he's praying to Father Abraham. He's begging Father Abraham. No. Now your prayers can be heard, your prayers of confession and repentance and your prayers for healing and need. Fourthly, give. Let me ask these questions. Do you have a gate around your money? around your stuff. Um, we're, we're all, I've said this before, and I know some of us here are not in the same economic realm, but we're all comparatively in North America, we're all comparatively rich with others in the world. If you think about it, most of our North American homes are desi- designed like, like gated communities, aren't they? We, you might not live in a literal gated community, but what's on the front of most of our houses? A garage. <laughs> That's the front door. It's a garage, right? And, and what's inside the garage? Our stuff. And what do we normally protect our stuff? I mean, I had a guy come by the house just the other day. Uh, there's a lot of break-ins in Squamish. Do you need ADT? Right? And I'm like, no. But that's what we do, right? Well, who are we protecting the stuff from? Those people outside the gate. That's our mindset. And so, again, how do you solve this problem? Uh, refer to point number three again. <laughs> Pray. Pray. 
ask God to give you a generous spirit. Ask God to give you a generous spirit. Number five is the last one I'll leave you with today. And it's, well, it's as important as all the rest. And it is this, share Jesus Christ. Guys, friends, I mean, this has been impacting me heavy this week, as it should all of us. There are people you love, people you know. People are dying. This is the ultimate decision in life. Share the gospel with them. Share the story of hope with them in Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with this quote from John Stott. Um, A preacher, pastor, theologian passed away about five or six years ago. I think it's poignant. He said this, Of course there's a cost to being a Christian. Of course there is. But it costs so much more not to be one. Pray with me, would you?